Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Alan Buckman, the president and chief of operations and co-founder and principal partner of Microtech. He has 38 years of experience as a wildlife biologist and environmental scientist with the California Department of Fish and Game. He has had the initial science programs and field applications. He has assisted and coordinated the field data collection and analysis for both field lab and for the research and development lab. He reviews projects for bioremediation and other land management services. He promotes product expansion and development and assists with public communications such as press releases, coordinates company activities with the CEO. He has also spoken at the UN about climate and trained people to understand what's happening with the climate. He was at the United Nations 60, the DPI NGO conference on climate change and how it impacts us all. He was a presenter there and he talked about dying plants, persistent jet clouds and a biorestoration alternative. He's also been with the Air Force. He's a wildlife specialist in training. He also did that for a unit biologist position. He has raised and released pheasants and partridges in California, and he's been a wildlife manager biologist for 38 years. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Alan Buckman to It's Rainmaking Time to talk about aerosol spraying of our air. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Kim. With your fish and game experience and your work as an environmental scientist, what is happening? What is this aerosol, and how is it affecting plant life? Okay, um, let me start with just a little um, introduction here in, in my wake-up call to the entire um, cloud program. And while I was a, a weather observer in the Air Force between 1960 and 64, um, and then as I was working as a wildlife biologist, I started noti- noticing a lot of, of dying plants, huge amount of stress in all of our ecosystems. And that got me really concerned. Um, and then in, it was in, oh, I was trying to figure out what was going on. And then in, in 2002, uh, I received a video from someone who said, hey, you are a weather observer. What do you think of this, this video? And the video was, it was, it's called the Cox video. And the fellow is from England. And um, he did a, a video right over San Francisco of all of the cloud programs going on. And I'll have to, to be honest, I put it on, and when I played it, I realized it was a real wake-up call for me. I'd, as a biologist, I'd been folk, taking my focus away from the sky and had really been looking at the ground and the trees and the plants and the wildlife. And uh, as a wake-up call, um, I had no doubt whatsoever just watching the video that it was a spraying program. Um, I was familiar with that when I was in the Air Force. I know that what we used to use was... Um, in fact, they still do for a lot of the, the weather work um, is a silver iodide. And, but um, the, the clouds I was seeing had to be a lot more than that. There was so much variety in them that they had to be a lot more nuclei that, to form the clouds than I was aware of. And it took me aback. Well, since then, I started investigating that as well to see what the links were. And then my observations since then... Um, basically, I, I am totally convinced that it's aerosol sprayed from jets. It's not normal exhaust. Uh, the differences are that the exhaust plumes, you know, from a normal contrail are tend to be very small, but these, these plumes are huge in volume. 
It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And the sprayed lines, they're not contrails, uh, which are the normal jet exhaust that only persist for a short time. Well, these things were persisting all day sometimes and spread out into clouds. And uh, as I was looking at the clouds, I thought, wow, they've come a long way since I was in the Air Force. But why are we doing all this? And is that... You know, then it started to dawn on me that, that this sprayed clouds was doing a number of things. Uh, and, but just to, to get back at it, as I was watching the planes, I, I saw that the sprayed aerosols were coming from many areas of the wings sometimes, sometimes from the tails, and that they weren't really going through the engines. I think the initial ones were, were set up. You know, so you thought they were, were exhaust from the engines, but... Um, I can tell you after after thousands of pictures and miles of video, it's really obvious that it's a program. And what does that mean to us? It's a program. Well, it means that somebody is intentionally spraying the clouds uh, to create these effects. You know, Alan, I live in Los Angeles, and I see these planes all the time having nothing to do with the clouds. I see them over Studio City, over Santa Monica. They've been seen pretty much around the planet. Um, I've got we've got uh, space shots of of the cloud trails over the whole whole of California and and over uh, England and and Australia and it looks like most of the NATO countries and I'm not sure the full extent of the program. I have friends living in New Zealand and a few years ago in 2008 they had attended a seminar that I did. And they were sharing that there is so much spraying, even in New Zealand. I think it's way beyond the NATO countries. I think it's all countries it's going it, on. It's probably planet-wide. What have you noticed in terms of your work on the ground with plants? Talk about that, because I think that's really important for us to know. Well, other than my observations of the die-off uh, and everything going on when I first started talking about it, um, well, it's like everything else. A lot of folks looked at me and said, uh, well, what do you know about this? Uh, I, I was pretty much ignored for a long time until, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. Geologic Survey biologist came out with a, a real study. See, mine were observations. I didn't really, uh, I didn't really go in and do the tissue samples and all that. I had so many other things to do for the department that it was a little much for me to take on at the time. If I'd have realized the importance of it then, I think I would have done a lot more. Most of the observations and most of the sampling that has taken place. Uh, has really been in Shasta County and in, in parts of Sacramento County. We far started taking samples of, of snow, uh, finding out that in some cases there were metallic particles, and they're mostly aluminum, some barium. Uh, there's quite a mixture of different metallic types. It looks like metal salt. Uh, I hear there's strontium. Uh, strontium, uh, strontium, radium, uh, uh, boron, uh, in fact, there was a one professor who we I heard a little presentation by. I'm sorry, I don't remember his name right now, but he was he was getting carried away a little bit by uh, the types of materials and the types of clouds they formed. He says, "Oh, you see the the puffy ones coming out the bottom." He said, "Those are boron." Then the long stringers are are strontium, and I was going, "Oh, this is too much." They they have all kinds of things they're doing, but then that. That kind of got hushed up. I didn't hear anything about that later. It's amazing. Things will come on, and then they, they get, kind of get hushed up. You don't really hear about them. I watched last night a new film called What in the World Are They Spraying? Uh, I was going to mention that. 
by G. Edward Griffin, Michael Murphy, and Paul Wittenberger. I'm interviewing two of them next week. And I have to tell you, it was the most devastating, disturbing thing I have seen in a long time. And what struck me as shocking is the response from our elected officials who had no interest. Very few had any interest. People are so in their heads about this. And all you got to do is go outside because they spray every day. See it. Anybody can see it. It doesn't take rocket science. We're not talking about weather balloons. We're not talking about UFOs. We're talking about planes that are spraying our air with deadly toxic materials. Really interesting when they're having the, oh, the scientists get together to talk about all this stuff. What are we going to do? And the very things that they were all proposing were the things that were already going on. And I had to think to myself, hey, don't you guys ever go outside and look up? I mean, it doesn't take too long as an observation if you're a weather person to figure out what the heck's going on. If you measure the contents in snow or water or you take plants and you measure what type of materials are on it, isn't that enough? Well, you would think so, but uh, but your comment about the officials. You know, uh, Rosalind Peterson and I have worked together on a lot of this for years. And we've taken this to the officials. We've had, I've had a lot of meetings with the congressional people, with everybody. We've sent in all kinds of information. We've basically been ignored. You know, it's like, uh, I can't believe this. This is critical. When you change the weather, you change your plant communities, and that's probably what's going on with all our plant communities and the, and the changes and the shift in seasons. Um, this program has been going on for a long time. I heard over 20 years. At least. Uh, one interesting uh, piece was that as we were looking at metallic particles, uh, we went through the California uh, water records. And in 1987, we had metallic particles that showed up in every water supply in California at the, in the same year. Now, I'm not sure how else you would do that other than aerial application. You know, unless they had a big covert inoculation program, but they were all pretty much similar. This seems to me to be a black project. That Seriously. That came up right away for me when we started trying to get a hold of the Air Force, started to, to go through and find out what was going on. It was silence. Or, or you get called a uh, conspiracy theorist. And I went, now, wait a minute. Back up. Uh, I'm not... I'm not you just brought that up, and I'll tell you what, I'm starting to believe it. And when you said that, I thought, well, those are your words. I'm believing that's exactly what you're doing. The purpose of using the words, it's a conspiracy theory, is to deflect and to defile and to dismiss a piece of information or a discovery that is occurring. It's done all the time to just deflect and to discredit the people that are bringing forth the discovery or the piece of material that needs to be examined. Unfortunately, people allow those words to deflect the basic facts. I've watched the spraying in Los Angeles. I've literally stood there. In fact, my mother died of Alzheimer's, and I remember visiting her in a home in Studio City. And I talked to her caretaker, and I said, I want you to come to the window with me. And I said, I want you to look outside and I want you to look up. Do you see that plane and what it's doing? She goes, yeah. I said, they're spraying toxic chemicals into the air. This goes on every day. Up daily. Um, one of the other uh, measurements that was taken, a lot of stuff was done in Shasta County. And there's a, a Forest Service biologist up there that was 
he's a long-term researcher, or has been, and he was taking pH samples of the forest. You know, every forest type really has its own own pH soils. You know, the, the timber all likes uh, a little more acidic or a little more basic, and the oaks like a little more more um, acidic. Well, up in the oak areas, they had an they've had an in, a pH increase from 5.5 to 6.8. Now that doesn't sound like much, but it's huge. Well, any rise in pH in a little bit is actually a lot. Oh, it's this is huge rise, and uh, some of the some of the metals they were finding in the snow were were like twenty five to thirty four hundred times uh, toxic levels. I mean, it's huge. I, the whole Shasta snowpack could be loaded that way. Uh, I don't know how much that's been looked at, but we haven't been able to get any of the the government scientists to go look at it and go measure it. It's 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 really um, it's really disturbing. I don't know if they're afraid of losing their jobs. Uh, I'm not sure what all. I'm sure there's a lot of things involved in it. But when you have real data coming out of the field and and real observers, now I'm not the only weather observer that has commented on this. I, I've been online and I've I've seen a half a dozen other. Uh, some of them were husband and wife teams that were doing uh, weather observation. You know for the for both the Weather Bureau and for the Air Force. And they've made the same comments that I've made. One of the comments was, hey, we're getting sundogs during most of the year when they only used to occur in the summer. And a sundog is like, you know, a ring around a ring around the sun with particular cloud types. Well, those particular cloud types only occur, or did only occur in those times. Now they're all the time. Then there's another interesting thing I noticed, and it was as they're flying their lines... A lot of times they'll do parallel line after parallel line, and this is before they do the crosses and the fill-ins. But all these parallel lines, there are nine high cloud types. In fact, there are 27 cloud types have been recognized total, nine at each level of three low, medium, and high clouds, and they're they're broken by strata. Well, I've seen almost all nine of the high clouds uh, in one formation during the day in the different lines. Well, that's indicated two things to me. One, that's impossible in under a natural condition. And second is it indicates how many different nuclei they're using to form the clouds. It's very diverse. Well, we also, I also think it's, it's nanoparticles. They stay in the sky so long and form clouds so well, and then that all drifts down as a kind of a silver haze. Well, then it's the haze that got me concerned as well as the clouds. Not only can you change your entire climate with a, a cloud cap over the top, um, but um, well, let's see, it almost went off into several tangents. Let me just say this to you. When I saw what in the world are they spraying last night, the thing that was so scary to me is that the geoengineers are using global warming and climate change as their reason, as their basis, and their license to do this. And they want to increase it to 200 parts per million. This Amazing. is so frightening. It should alarm every environmental person, every person that loves the earth, every person that cares about the food supply, the seed supply. This will completely render organic seeds, traditional seeds, useless. They won't be able to grow in this. And we're going to be it, dependent it, on genetically yeah, modified seeds. Yeah. Well, it's shifting It's shifting the the... The plant populations, which is shifting the wildlife populations, everything is getting affected by this, and it 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 almost looks more like a a um, 
a population reduction program than anything. When you understand how vile it is, I would agree with yeah. you. I could be wrong, but I think that this is why the bees are dying. It's, it's entirely possible. Uh, one of the other things is using the metallic particles to form their clouds, and then for this haze that drifts down to the ground, it ionizes the entire air column. And what does that mean? Explain well, it to it, us. It means, it means there's metallic particles, really fine metallic particles scattered throughout the air. And if you were to hit that with the right wave, uh, a projection wave, it amplifies what you're trying to do. Um, for HARP, our HARP is a, the high, high-frequency active oral research program is nothing but a great big transmitter of almost unlimited wave frequencies. You know, I interviewed Nick Begich about that, but explain it to our audience if they haven't heard that interview. Go ahead and explain what it does. Uh, well, basically, it transmits different waves into the atmosphere, and they can bounce it off the atmosphere. They can direct it, and they can, they can aim it to hit, like bounce off of whatever part of the atmosphere they want to bounce off of, maybe hit the ocean, which might explain why some of our ocean areas are heating up. Absolutely. Um, it would explain whatever you know glacier melting is going on. It would explain it would explain a lot of things. Um, what is still mystifies me, and I don't, I personally, I ha haven't quite figured this out yet, is um, is how how is it that with a sky cover over us that's actually reducing the amount of illumination we're getting. Um, how, how can we have increased UV levels? Our ultraviolet levels have been going off the chart. Now, I've documented burning on trees and plants on certain days. The UV levels are going over 14. I've heard that the HARP technology has blown holes in our ionosphere, right. letting in radiation, gamma rays, and that could be how it's happening. Right, and I guess they, they maintained uh, the, the records on uh, that we've been in a cool period by keeping everything trapped inside this envelope. Where, But I, I don't understand why how that isn't showing up more uh, in the weather uh, analysis. It's, it, there's still some wrinkles in it that I don't quite get. But anyway, what I do get is that we've got a lot of problems, and and there are several things that you can do storm intensity. A cap, you know, most thunderstorms need a cyclonic movement, moisture, and a cap over the top. Well, this provides a cap over the top for any storms coming in. It's going to increase storm intensity. Okay, it makes thunderstorm. In fact, that creates thunderstorm. Now, when you say it, are you now referring to the harp, or are you referring to the geoengineering and the aerosol spraying? Uh, it, in this case, is the uh, spraying program. Okay, okay, got it. Okay. Yeah. And then you add HARP to that, and it gets even more complicated. When you go to Congress and you begin to bring the evidence for what's happening, and it's deflected and ignored, that is, to me, the indicator it's a black project. Oh, absolutely. When I started asking questions, you know, through the normal channels, the, the, the answers I got and the lack of answers I got, I went, what's going on? I'm I'm used to, you know, I work for an agency. Normally when you went into programs, you got some fairly straight answers with things, or at least you got an answer. And anytime anybody does that, all it does is raises more raise more suspicion that what's wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. You know, so and then in my observations I started looking at the aircraft. You know, they're mostly unmarked uh white, either C one forty ones or 
or KC-135s, which are the air refueling tankers, basically the same as the 707. Um, and they were flying all these patterns, and then they started doing the cross-hatching. And the cross-hatching, basically, I know you, they can follow that on the, from the satellites to see the storm and front movements, but um, I've got photo documentation of a, they started spraying a beautiful clear sky in the morning, and it was two hours later had a total sky cover on it. Two hours. I was totally amazed. And like I said, I've got a lot of this documented, so I know for a fact they're doing it. What do you think about the possibility that this project is going to come forward in full force and expand it at a very high level, like 200 parts per million, under the guise of, quote, global warming? How does that make you feel, and what do you think about it? It's deceptive, um, and uh, I'd like to see the entire HARP project terminated as soon as possible. There, that has the potential to tap into the hysteric energy of the Earth, and it affects all life forms. Frankly, I think it's insane. I do, too. Oh. I do, too. And when Copenhagen happened last year, I wrote a piece on the things that were omitted from the entire climate discussion that were oh. not even allowed on the table, and HARP was one of the keys. Oh, yeah. They, they're doing weather programs, and they say that we're going to change the weather by 2025. They're going to own the weather by Yeah, I think the article says we're going to own the weather. Yeah, how in the hell can you own the weather if you're not doing weather programs? Now, I know the Air Force better than military, better than that. I was with them for four years. I saw a lot of things that I just soon not talk about. But um, basically, uh, it's all a big lie. The Tesla patent is owned by Raytheon. Uh, yes, that's an, another, uh, yeah, right. So I think they do own the weather right now. Well, they certainly own the technology, and they own, the, they own patents on powder generators to create them. Uh, in fact, uh, the Agricultural Defense Coalition website, I'm not sure how many documents Rosalind had po has posted right now. I haven't checked it lately, but the goal was like 26,000 documents. Seriously. I love her. She's done such a remarkable job. Let's tell them about that website again. Um, it's Agriculture Defense Coalition. Dot org? Dot org. Okay, great. Remarkable. In fact, I'm going to put an ad up for her uh, sponsorship bet because everybody should be reading the material she's posting. She's an incredible researcher. Um, I've been thrilled to be, even be associated with her. She's stellar. And the thing that she said about the Navy going in and able to kill 5 million sea animals and habitats because of the experiments they're doing in the waters so upset me. So much upset me, I can't even tell you. I'm still I'm, reeling from finding that out. I, I don't know how they ever got an EIR in, into the process without total government intervention. Nobody controls the Navy. The Navy runs everything. Everything, everything, including our satellites that have to do with warfare. Right, right. And I don't know if you've seen the new book out about NASA uh, by Richard Hoagland. It's called Dark Mission. Oh, yeah. It was out, I think, five, six years ago or something. Yeah, it's an older publication, yeah. but um, wow. I mean, it's all the things uh, you want to know about secret stuff. Yeah, they've had several space programs that have nothing to do with the public. The public's being left out of all of this. <laughs> In fact, we've been lied to, and we're being dumbed down. You know, if you speak up, you're a, you're a conspiracy person. I, I love Jesse Ventura's site. He makes the whole thing a lot of fun. He's a very good researcher, and he's tackling a lot of the things that are going on. The thing is that a lot of people don't want to know and don't want to look at it because, A, it's very painful. B, they feel helpless. And C, they don't know what to do about it. 
even if a critical mass finds out and we put pressure on elected officials, the fact is that a lot of the elected officials are going to be told by the people that are carrying out the black projects, you do exactly what we tell you to do or you're going to be gone or your family's going to be gone. And that's what happens when Dennis Kucinich came forward with the Space Preservation Act that included commitments to not spray the air, the aerosol programs. He was told never to talk about it. Never. Yep. And to remove it from the original treaty. Yeah, well, that's kind of like the irony of the very term chemtrails that they're talking about. Um, As far as I can tell, that originated from a military contract document for, for Space Wars planning. So, you know, the military coined the term. And it's ironic now that they, anybody that uses that term is, is you know, like, like you said before, they're being discredited. I'm wondering if you happen to know, Alan, how to chelate some of these nanoparticles out of our system. We're obviously breathing it in, and I think everybody should have toxic metals tests. They're inexpensive and they're critical. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when it comes to nanoparticles, I'm going to have to profess I am no expert on nanoparticles. I'm not sure how those would be different than, say, other metals in the ecosystem. Now, I know from a biological standpoint, you know, from microbe tech, in most of the water treatment and soil treatments we've done, we've been able, the microbes are able to immobilize a lot of the metals and put them into compounds that aren't available. So it basically ties them up and keeps them from being problems to agriculture. You mean functionally neutralizes them? Uh, A good part of them. Okay. Um, now, we don't have enough data to say how much and under what conditions exactly. So who would call you to order the products that you have? Explain what you're doing now. Well, what, what we have are, are microbial mixes that are designed, and they were patented, for water clean, cleaning, soil treatment, and re-inoculation to re-inoculate the soils, uh, restore the health of the soil, um, clean the waters and restore the waters and restore their health. How would a microbe work in water? Give an example. Share with us what that uh, means. Sure. We, had, uh, we did one pond for the Department of Fish and Game here in the, in the Bay Area. Uh, it was called West Bahia Pond, and it had an invasion of toxic blue-green algae. And the algae, that particular algae, um, produced huge amounts of sulfur compounds, and the neurotoxins were, were at, at incredibly high levels. And it was really, it was dangerous to breathe, and it, it, it really smelled like sewage. Around the edge of the pond, um, the material, uh, flo- the, the algae flocculated on the shore, meaning it foamed, and then the foam turned hard, and it really looked like stools off across the bench. I thought they had a sewage outbreak when I first saw it, and it smelled like it, and that sewage odor was blowing across the entire Bay Area. It was disgusting. Uh, Fish and Game was ordered to do something, but... Gosh, most of the, almost all the solutions except ours involved things that they couldn't do then. Wrong time of year, no money to do it, uh, a lot of other reasons. But um, anyway, so they contracted us, and we went in, and with uh, the help of, in fact, it was a multiple agency program. It was, you know, for the state, but it was also um, Sonoma County and Marin County Agri- um, Mosquito Abatement District brought their equipment in. They did a great job of, of applying it. So they took they took a lot of the of the, the the actual work to keep their costs down. We said that's fine. We'll just provide the product that works for us. Anyway, we they sprayed the whole thing. It's 110 acres. It's a big pond, and immediately the water turned brown. The odor stopped. 
And then it took about three months, you know, without any air. It was already in a eutrophic condition, you know, and it was pretty disgusting. Uh, it took about three months for the waters to really clean. And when we started, there were no fish. Uh, there were no there were no birds on the pond, which was unusual, and they were on all the other ponds at the time. Uh, and but there were dead dead birds along the shoreline. I feel so bad. What's happening to birds and to bees? And to- oh, it's, it was disgusting. But anyway, at three months, uh, and the other uh, the other ponds uh, started turning bad. Uh, we ended up having the only pond that had fish in it, and the birds were on it. It was a, a dramatic reversal of conditions. And then, as uh, they opened, then opened it all up to uh, flow. They had broke some levees, and it was an isolated pond. And anyway, when they broke the levees and the water flowed from higher benches into the pond, it got treated. And you could watch the microbes treating this stuff. That's a pond, but what about regular water? Is that something we would use at home or no? Um, Not really? Well, you'd probably, we have stuff to put down the toilets to clean your, you know, the waste and and sewage. Um, Most of the time what you're looking at is ponds that are getting algae. You know, when things warm up, the algaes bloom. And what our microbes do in the water is they outcompete the algae for food. They they they're quicker and in fact a typical example is we have one one area that we've treated and in when it comes into the springtime uh, and it starts warming up the algae just starts to bloom but then the microbes eat the material right out from under the algae and they start to die from starvation and then the the microbes eat the dead ones and they clean up dead material and convert it into into other material. Do you think that what you have could be used in the Gulf? Oh, we put in a proposal to do that, yes. Um, our, our water treatment uh, formula was developed by, um, partly developed by an individual, uh, Dr. Colosito in Bakersfield, and he was working, uh, treating um, oil, oil field problems all through Bakersfield and in that area. So he's been doing uh, oil cleanup for a long time. We have a real diverse mixture of microbes in our mix that goes after, we have stuff in there that goes after almost everything. Uh, they went after the the um, sulfur compounds. They went after the metals. They went after um, all the other really bad stuff, and it, it rebalances the water column. Do you think it could go after Corexit? Oh, Corexit. Oh, absolutely. The, the toxic chemicals. Yes. Absolutely. These things eat everything. See, that's why I don't understand why BP is allowed to drive the whole operation in the Gulf. They have acted almost at the level of criminality, the way this has been handled, and why are they given the power to continue right no. there? Why are they managing it? One interesting thing that came up about that uh, had, to, had, to do with, um, had to do with growing algae in the futures in biofuel. And that if they, it almost looked like, well, in fact, the story was that they wanted to turn the whole gulf into algae production per biofuel. And if you go and look at, at who is invested in biofuels, it's all the same players. So are they trying to destroy a huge e- ecosystem just to grow algae for biofuel? It's, I, I, I found it a fascinating idea, <laughs> and it kind of looked like what they were up to. Uh, otherwise, it makes no sense why they were allowed to do any of that. Why they're allowed to manage it yeah. after why the problem Why would you want to break your oil up into particles that went down into the ecosystem and kind of disappear just to, just to get rid of it? Make everybody think everything's honky-donky. 
Well, a lot of that stuff goes right into the soil, like, you know, the Exxon Valdez spill in Alaska. There's still oil uh, soaked into the, to the soils. Well, I know from the treatments we've done with our products that uh, our, the microbes go right down into the soil and go after it. You know that this is the first time this year that I learned the level at which oil companies do deep level drilling for oil under the sea. I, would I never knew that. No, I never knew that. I always associated in my mind drilling for oil on land, yeah, not into the sea. I would have assumed there would have been a very different protocol for making sure that it's safe. Well, one would think so. And I, all the environmental laws we've had, I mean, it flies in the face of everything I've ever done under any of the laws, you know, for the department. Project reviews, reporting, all the rest of it, it was pretty stringent. Well, these guys are free to do anything they want. It's actually, it's, uh, it's crazy. Did you enjoy working for the California Department of Fish and Game? Actually, I did. I love my job, I, you know, because I love the resources, and I was really glad to be out there. I tended to be a little, I think one of the county administrators said to me the other day, he says, well, I could believe this. He says, you were always very sensitive about resource issues. So, <laughs> 38 years is a long time. That's more than most people are married. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a real marriage, isn't it? I was married to him. Yeah, thirty-eight years plus. Yeah. I was married to that, and um, it was hard to it was hard to leave it. Would you go back if you could? No, I really like the microbe tech uh, and the microbial cleanup. I wanted to do something. All that time, I got really frustrated not being able to really do anything. You know what you got on mitigations on projects. It ne- I was never really satisfied with the whole environmental process. It, it ends up being something that incrementally just keeps going, moving on. By the time you think, oh, this is all it's going to be for now, and you try to set areas aside, you find out later they weren't. Uh, people ignore all that stuff. Uh, it doesn't work. It hasn't been working. Everybody likes to think it is, but it's not. And we end up with, with situations like we're in right now. It's an incremental loss of everything until you know people actually are taking over. I think between the aerosol spraying programs of the air and the defilement of the air in combination with HARP and in combination with genetically modified seeds and fluoridating and putting other chemicals in water, I really think that those are the keys to a flourishing civilization to deal with that directly. Yeah, no, we should be. We should be, but there's obviously some other program going on that the rest of us aren't being allowed to be in. And, you know, I I was thinking it really looked like a genocide program to me. The longer I look at it, the more it looks like that. I I suppose, you know, we've been pressing our resources with a number of people we have. And, you know, I've got to thinking, gosh, what if I had, what if I was a ruler of the world? And what would be my, what would be my, my biggest dilemma? Well, we've been pretty much aware of the resources for a long time that it's population control, uncontrolled population growth. Okay? How do you control that? You start looking around at the, the religion ba- uh, bases and, and what people do and don't want to do. You'd never get it done. I mean, how would you change it? You'd almost have to go over the top, which it looks like they're doing. But I have a suspicion it's not for our benefit. It really looks like somebody else's private program that they want to just basically take over everything. I was told by an astrophysicist right before he passed away last year that you could take all the people in the United States and put them in Texas. And that the whole concern for population 
is unmerited. It is irrational. There is so much land. There is so much available. Tim, the amount of land that's available versus what you can do with that land is a different thing. We have, so we're going to tear down all our forests to grow crops. We're going to, you know, we're going to change, you know, irrigate the deserts and change all our climate. Anything you do, that's limited. I'm sorry. I disagree with your, your friend. I didn't say it's unlimited. I'm saying that he said you could take all the people in the United States and put them in Texas. It is an irrational concern. You couldn't put all the people in Texas and live. The point is that he's saying that it has been escalated. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. Look at the people here and how we're using our resources. What's happened to our fishery? Well, I mean, aside from the other environmental impacts going on from these covert sure. programs. Yeah, yes, of course. Well, we were overfishing everything. We have, we're overusing everything. We're actually changing our whole land base, and we're, we're destroying our natural resources for artificial production. I went to Trader Joe's the other day, and someone asked me to pick up a certain type of a fish, and I realized that it was farmed. It wasn't even real fish. Well, farmed fish can be okay if, you know, depending on how they're raised. I don't, I don't have a problem with farmed fish. The only problem that I had with the farmed salmon in the in the exclosures out in the in the ocean was that they're getting my, they're getting uh, uh, different parasites that live right in the. They can't since the fish aren't mobile. The parasites move into the pens, and then when the natives come by, they catch them too, and that's been depleting our populations. But it's mostly over harvest, and if you start looking at uh, at the fish, the the orange ruffies, and and a lot of the other fish that are on the market now. Those were scrap fish, deep water ocean fish that nobody ever used or rarely used. We've depleted our stock so much we're using we're using fish we that were trash fish. That's what they were considered. I never thought orange ruffy was considered a trash fish. That's fascinating. I never knew that. Oh yeah. It's really good, though. <laughs> oh, well, even even what was considered trash fish then uh, are edible. <laughs> it's it's just that the the idea is that we are we've depleted our resources so badly yes. that um, I don't think we could take many more population and keep our resources intact. To be honest, so if there is a population program going on, and it seems like there is, I think Agenda Twenty One really does exist. Yeah. We don't have any say about it. It's just going on, and it's affecting everybody on land, right? Well, think about the haze. Um, the haze on the ground, the silver haze. I'm a sensitive to this stuff. I am, I too. I get up in the morning, and I go outside. I have a little routine I do. I go feed the cats and, you know, and get some water and, and do some things outside. I have to haul my own water in, so I have my drinking water in barrels outside. But anyway, I go out and do that, and I'm not out there a minute, and my eyes are watering, and my nose is running. I mean, my run- nose runs like a faucet for 10, 15 minutes every day, and it's like, uh, this is too much. I, I really hate it. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show to talk to us about your background and what you're doing and what you found. And next week, we're going to be talking to G. Edward Griffin and Michael Murphy about what in the world are they spraying a little bit deeper into their film. And I just really thank you for joining us and hope that you'll come back again and talk to us, maybe with Rosalind. That would be great. You're more than welcome. And um, this is something I feel deeply as part of my public service is to let people know. So I'm, I'm, you know, I... That's why I decided to go to the U.N. and why I'm putting a lot of information out. And, and I, I haven't seen the, the, uh, the show yet. What in the world are they spraying? I've seen some pre-clips. I don't 
I know that I was interviewed for far for part of it. I don't know if I'm in it or not, but uh, it's a it's something that everybody needs to see. Absolutely. I think everybody should have a copy of this. This is really important. And ladies and gentlemen, you can reach Alan Buckman at www.microbetech.com. Microbetech.com. Thank you so much, Alan.